Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, December 3rd. You're going to know that I am hosting the show when you hear the title that I have chosen, The Neutral Laws of General Applicability Edition. <laughs> I'm Emily Bazelon from the New York Times Magazine and Yale Law School. David Plotz is away this week. Well, he's kind of mostly away. He will reappear later. But for now, I am delighted to be joined by Jamel Bowie, who, of course, is a columnist for the New York Times. Hi, Jamel. Hello. And also with us is John Dickerson of 60 Minutes at CBS. Hey, John. Hello. Hello. Um, <laughs> I don't I know where like that... That's the first time I've ever uh, used that intonation on this show in 15 years. I thought I'd break out something new. I know. It did seem slightly unfamiliar, but it's good to try out new greetings. You know, yeah. it's the holiday season. You may have to greet more people. No, actually, you won't because Keeping we will be going nowhere yeah. and seeing no one. Anyway, on the show today, we will have, as usual, three topics. First, we will talk about the presidential pardon power. How has it been used in the past? How does President Trump perhaps plan to use it before the end of his term? And will he break through yet more norms that have prevented other presidents from pardoning themselves? For our second topic, we'll talk about the Supreme Court and its recent ruling in favor of religious groups in New York that challenged New York's restrictions on gatherings and houses of worship. Those were restrictions New York put in place, it said, to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Third topic, we are going to have a special guest, former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who turns out to be a GabFest listener. We were very honored to discover. We're going to talk to him about the rise of disinformation around the globe, Rupert Murdoch, and how America, our dear country, can restore its place at the table of international affairs. Before we dive into the meat of the show, a quick reminder to GabFest fans, we have a live show coming up next week. It's on Wednesday, December 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can learn more at slate.com slash live. We are already looking forward to that. So to set up our first topic, last week, President Trump pardoned his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who had pled guilty twice to lying to federal investigators. The Justice Department had been in the process of trying to withdraw the charges against Flynn, but now the judge in the case won't have to decide what to do about that. The Flynn pardon reminds me of the pardon for Roger Stone, um, another Trump familiar who'd been convicted of charges brought by special counsel Robert Mueller and is off the hook for that. Of course, these pardons, especially the Flynn pardon, are raising a lot of speculation about who else is going to be on President Trump's Christmas pardon list. There's some names, some blasts from the past, at least for me, the names on this list. People like former campaign manager Paul Manafort or Rick Gates or George Papadopoulos, a very minor player in various Trump doings who also uh, pled guilty to crimes. And then there's this mysterious story brooding about there's a redacted court filing from last summer that shows the Department of Justice was, at the time at least, investigating the possibility that someone was trying to bribe someone uh, at the White House for a pardon. And these are all unnamed officials, but it was sort of a tantalizing notion that that could be going about. The biggest question is whether Trump is going to issue a pardon for himself, his adult children, and Rudy Giuliani. This would be something that nobody president has done before. It's really not clear whether it's legal or not, because it was always seen as out of bounds in the past and too embarrassing. But Sure, it might be on the table. Why not? Jamel, do you think there are any constraints here, either legally or politically, on what President Trump can consider using his pardon power for? 
I think politically there are definitely constraints. I think that Americans have a general intuition that pardons should not be used uh, as essentially a get out of free, a get out of jail free card for when you've committed wrongdoing or when someone around you's committed wrongdoing. And I think that an ordinary president, right, would take that public sentiment as a serious constraint and not engage in pardons. But of course, President Trump doesn't care too much about those things, so it's not going to stop him. I know that there is an argument that legally the president's pardon power may be unlimited, but I sort of have a dim view of that argument because I think it depends on sort of stretching our credulity about what the intent of the pardon power was. If you think about the construction of the pardon power, what the framers were thinking when they decided to give the president that power, they were not intending for it to be a sort of way for presidents to circumvent the law and get away with it. I have this like general view that for things like this, when it's unclear, at least on paper, what the scope of a power is, we should sort of use common sense, right? If if a use of a power would seem to kind of violate a basic principle of lowercase d, democratic government, lowercase r, Republican government, whatever, however you want to describe it, if it would seem to cut against the rule of law, then it probably isn't something that should happen and that we should treat it as illegitimate, even if it is legal. And I think that this distinction, I mean, it's important to keep in mind the distinction between like legal legality and legitimacy. Like it may be totally legal for Trump to pre-pardon his kids and pardon Giuliani and pardon himself, but it I think is clearly illegitimate. Yeah. And one constraint that I do think clearly applies is that you can't issue a pardon in order to obstruct justice. In other words, like if Trump is, if there was a quid pro quo, if he was saying to Giuliani, like you have the dirt on me, I'm giving you a pardon so you don't spill it. Otherwise, I would be in legal trouble. That I think he could still get in trouble. Like the pardon of Giuliani could still be valid, but Trump could get in trouble for it. Now, of course, like that imagines some kind of tape recording of this quid pro quo conversation, which presumably would never exist. Uh, anyway, John, what do you think about the constraints here, if any? Yeah. So just to pick up on what Jamel was saying, with which I agree, um, I mean, what he's articulating um you know, is is something uh, Greg Nunziata, um, a Republican lawyer, wrote about in the Atlantic. In this government, there are those things that are legal, and then there are those things that elected rulers do uh, and are constrained by because of kind of the basic agreement of the Republican form of government, which is basically when you gain power, you're going to adhere to some sort of set of shared practices and behaviors not to completely trample on things that may be strictly speaking, legal, but are not fair game. And as Jamel pointed out, they'd go well beyond the original conception of the power. That would be something where, you know, you're, you can't trample in there just willy-nilly. So we, we know what the president does, but one of the ways to hold a president account is for, is for either Congress or even members of his own party to either shame him or at least publicly say this is not good behavior to try to put the, the genie back in the box. But what's happened is... The president has created a market where, you know, lack of shame is the admissions price basically to the 2024 primary. And so in the remaining days of the Trump presidency, I've been thinking about all of the fealty that those who want to run for president in 2024 are showing to him by in part backing his meritless and crazy claims about the election being overthrown is a kind of anti you have to put in to show that you are 
ever more ready to be president in that party. And so I see the pardons and the support for them, as opposed to uh, the accountability you would hope to expect in the in the process, the support for the pardons and the sports for basically anything he does in these limited days before his presidency is over as a kind of test to see if you're really, you know, the true thing. So that's just another way in which he's not constrained by his own party. And in fact, would be encouraged by some of the most uh, loudest voices in it. Yeah, I mean, I look at the wild conspiracy mongering going on still about the election, which, you know, Jamel wrote last week about the link between that kind of crazy rhetoric and the birtherism myth about Obama and, you know, how it has this kind of common heritage and method. And I just worry more and more that we're entering a universe in which all of the legitimacy concerns you both clearly laid out don't apply to some significant fraction, at least of the Republican voting electorate. And that, you know, the right wing media can be counted on if Trump does pardon himself or people in his family or Giuliani to say he had no choice. There are these, you know, people out to get him, the deep state. I mean, if Trump can continue accusing his own Department of Justice with his hand-picked loyal attorney general and his own FBI of creating wild voting plots and schemes against him or failing to stop them, won't Lou Dobbs, Sean Hannity, everyone else just get in line behind the idea, oh, you had no choice but to protect yourself and your family from these terrible Democrats who are going to come in and have a witch hunt against you. I mean, Jamal, doesn't that seem totally plausible? No, I think that's very plausible. Um, I think that's probably likely. It's sort of the, the, the basic problem for Republican lawmakers who want to make a break with Trump is that there is this external disciplining you know, institution called conservative media that will turn on them at the drop of a hat, especially since it, they are fully aligned with Trump. The incentive they have isn't actually to win elections, right? The incentive Rush Limbaugh has or Sean Hannity has isn't to win elections. It isn't to sort of support these institutions. It is to make money and to make money by encouraging a sense of grievance among their listeners. And so if if a bunch of Republican Party uh, lawmakers were to just publicly come out and, you know, harshly repudiate Trump for all of this, there's a pretty good chance they would face immediate political backlash because of it. And that that constrains their options quite a bit. And I can sort of, for as much as I'm like simultaneously unsympathetic, but also completely sympathetic, because I can imagine being in that situation and essentially saying to myself, if I'm responsible and if I speak out, the person who ends up taking this seat may be truly far gone, like not even remotely responsible. Like there, might, there, is, there are clearly worse people out there who want this position of power. And so maybe I can do something by staying quiet versus speaking out and losing what influence I have. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult situation to be in. And- and just to piggyback on what Jamel's saying, the, what I've heard from senators who have a flavor of that is uh, if I speak out, it'll just muddle my attempts to try and do the basic things I'm trying to do for my constituents. Um, and so there's that, that there's that second part, too, is just this is a huge headache I'm taking on if I speak out because I'll be attacked by by Hannity and Rush and then I'll be attacked in the street. And so, you know, yes, this is bad. But why do I want that headache? 
Well, and they never band together collectively. They always walk the gangplank one at a time. And then the combination of these media figures and Trump himself is able to just, like, take them down. It, it, it is interesting to think, because the one thing I was, I was, I was maybe not hoping on, but sort of wondering if it would play out is there are clearly these younger Republican um, lawmakers with presidential ambitions, you know, Nikki Haley, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, all these people. And it would seem that affirming the president's beliefs about these things only sets up the stage for the president basically be able to do pick a do a handpicked successor, right? To have a huge amount of influence on the twenty twenty four primary. And if I, if it were if if I were in this if I were a, an up and coming Republican who wanted to run for president, it would seem to be in my interest actually to reduce the influence Trump has on the field. That his his heavy hand ends up constraining everyone, and knowing the kind of person he is, there's a good chance he'll just run again. Right. And so I've just you know by 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 not breaking with him, I've just sort of sealed my own fate. And if I'm running, if I'm going to run as a successor to Trump, I'm not going to be able to beat the guy. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By playing in the Trump market, you make him the the last the kingmaker. Right. right. I mean, there have been some breaking away by state and local officials in the last few weeks, right, who've been forced into defying Trump about the election. And then you have the amazing spectacle of a crowd chanting, lock him up about Brian Kemp, the very <laughs> red Republican in Georgia. And, and local and state officials in Georgia are starting to say, hey, you know, things are getting dangerous here. Folks are getting death threats. Like, this is really spinning out of control. But I don't see, again, the sort of national Republicans really responding with, you know, appropriate concern and sobriety to that set of considerations. And I just feel like Hawley, Haley, um, Cotton, those folks, like, they still have a collective action problem, right? Because they're rivals with each other. And the notion that they're going to coordinate some move to um, eliminate Trump or at least reduce his power, they just seem too, too afraid of him to do that. Emily, can I ask you a question about the Flynn case? Because one thing that interests me there is that um, the president's pardon of Flynn basically is pardons him for the lying and then also takes care of his uh, working as a foreign agent for Turkey. Um, it basically takes care of everything, right? Yeah. Um, but in the Flynn case, um, Judge Sullivan, the federal district court, had Basically, Barr asked him to dismiss the case. Sullivan said, no, I'm going to appoint this guy, John Gleason, to examine whether what Barr had asked was an abuse of power. So he appointed John Gleason, former federal judge, to look into whether the Department of Justice had overstepped its bounds. Where does that hang? Because does that work all go away now? Or can Sullivan, it does? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Flynn's lawyers filed a motion asking Sullivan to dismiss the case and just end this investigation that former Judge Gleason was doing. And I assume Sullivan will, because a pardon just eliminates all possibility of criminal liability. I don't really see how there is a case or controversy before the court anymore. Couldn't you argue that what Gleason was looking into was interesting on its own, just as a kind of where to draw the lines on what a justice, what an attorney general can ask of the court and as a kind of um, learning exercise that it would be useful to have that information. I think isn't exactly, he basically, 
He's basically done with his work, isn't he, Gleason? He's pretty. I mean, close. Gleason did file a brief in which he laid out his findings about why this looked to him like the Justice Department had gone beyond the bounds and um, abused its power. And you know, you can argue that better to have Trump use his pardon power than pervert the legal system by forcing through the Justice Department withdrawing these charges, which looked very fishy and like it was going to set a bad precedent. Do you think that this whole discussion about Trump pardoning himself and his kids means that we should have more constraints on the pardon power? Um, yeah, John, you're nodding. What constraints? Yeah. Like, you can't well, pardon any, yourself. I mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, as Jamel quite rightly pointed out, is that usually um, everybody didn't used to go to the nth degree of any power to to take it as far as they possibly could go and dare people to stop you. It's it's in a way, it, it's a similar, it feels to me, like the way the, the law, the rules of evidence have flipped in public conversations. It's basically cr- claim the craziest thing you can and then dare people to find evidence against you as opposed to the normal way you're supposed to behave, which is if you're the crazier the thing you claim, the more evidence you have to, to even make the claim for the first time. So in this age of maximalization and pushing everything to, to its ultimate conclusion or to its, you know, as far as you possibly can, what's the, cons- the constraining power has to come from Congress. It's, invi- it's this invites Congress. And, you know, and, and Clinton's use of the pardon power with Mark Rich was incredibly hard to defend. People would also say George Herbert Walker Bush is, I can't remember, did he pardon or commute? He um, pardoned well, six former uh, Reagan officials connected to the Iran-Contra affair, including former inc- Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger. Including the, right. Um, so it's been, it's all, it was already ripe for assessment. But what President Trump has done, as he has in so many other parts of the presidency, is he's not only flirting with expanding it, even going well beyond and basically, in you know, protecting political cronies. But he also used it prophylactically. There's evidence in the Mueller investigation that he basically told people, just do what I need you to do and I'll pardon you later. He also did that sort of in the nuts and bolts of the presidency when he wanted something done and was told it was illegal he would he told uh, staffers just do it and I'll pardon you later then that really is a bastardization of accountability not just with respect to the pardon power but with respect to the presidency in general um now the problem is you have to have congress do it and we're stuck And with how it is really tricky you have separation of powers issues um Jamel do you have thoughts about this I was, I was actually going to say the separation of powers problem. Can, does Congress even have the authority to constrain the president's pardon power in that way? I mean, this gets to something I, I've been over the for the past like 18 months on this sort of binge of the history of the early republic. So my like bookshelf is just full of stuff on sort of like minutia on the early presidency and, and, and all of that. And one thing I keep coming to lately is an observation James Madison made like in 1787 or 88. And he, he said that, this is some paraphrasing and some direct quoting, ordinary people or elected officials, whomever, had to have sufficient virtue and intelligence to select men of virtue and wisdom, or else no theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. <laughs> and there's this issue, right, where you kind of have to have people who believe in the Republican idea. Right. You kind of, at the end of the day, there really is no set of rules or laws or constraints you can put together that's going to stop actors who simply do not believe that power could, should be constrained. And so you know, if, if Congress can 
create some new rules and standards for the pardon power. I think they should. But I also think we should consider the extent to which it does actually matter who you put in these offices. It, it really does. The character of these people is vitally important because there are, as, we, as we've seen now, there are people who simply do not think that there should be any checks on power, that power should be held accountable in any way. And they will look for any any method they have to to actualize that belief and bring it into the world. And they'll push against all constraints and reveal all sorts of weaknesses. And in the process, kind of lay out for anyone in the future, you know, here's how here's how you do this. So now it's you pro you prophylactically pardon your kids in case they committed a crime. In the future, it might be <laughs> you hire someone to kill a Supreme Court justice, and then you offer them a pardon. Hmm. I hope, really hope not. That still seems like you would get in trouble for aiding and abetting murder. But I hear you. I mean, this whole thing of, like, the slippery slope of eroding norms, and the president simply has enormous power. So, of course, you're totally right that it matters who sits in that chair. The final point I wanted to make is that what's really wrong with the pardon power and the clemency process is that the president doesn't use it nearly enough. There are thousands of people who are in prison based on, you know, drug charges that are no longer how we prosecute those kinds of crimes, people who have hugely disproportionate punishments, people who are innocent. Um, That's what we really need is a way of using the pardon power that is not self-dealing, but deals much more systematically with and and largely with our terribly disproportionate system of criminal punishment. But the problem with Trump is like he takes away all the oxygen from that conversation. And then we have this one instead. There was some coverage of the idea that 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 was one of the things he was playing footsie with, which is actually, well, basically to pardon um, all kinds of people who were who were as a part of what he tried to do with prison reform to pardon people who are in for lots of petty crimes and and actually use it in a what would be considered a more beneficial way. I mean, we'll see. So far, his rate of pardon has been lower than other presidents. So, yes, there's time left. And if he wants to use his pardon power in that way, I, for one, will applaud him. Um, even if he's... Yeah, that, that, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I was just going to agree and say that that is that is totally the way I'd like to see a president use the pardon power, just sort of even set up a dedicated office basically for finding these cases and sort of like reviewing them and then just like offering offering pardons down the line. There is an office. It just has been pretty dysfunctional. So this is also something that the Biden administration could and should take up is reforming the whole clemency process and making it a much more feasible route to um, to getting out and restarting your life. Hey, listeners, before our second topic, I want to remind you that for us at the GabFest, it is conundrum season, the annual tradition in which we devote a special show entirely to our heartfelt attempt to answer questions like, what was the most consequential presidential election in American history? And our favorite, would you rather be a fish or a tree? So we need you to send us your conundrums. Please go to slate.com slash conundrum. We would love to hear all of your clever questions. Um, We got one from a listener in my home state named Ben. He is wondering who would win in a fight between cavemen and astronauts. My colleague Wesley Morris at the New York Times also sent a great conundrum yesterday. I will not um, reveal it. I will not give a sneak preview, but we will surely discuss it. So we need all of you to send us your best conundrum. Please go to slate.com slash conundrum. And we thank you. 
This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Moving on to our second topic, the Supreme Court in the midnight hour of Thanksgiving granted requests from the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and two Orthodox Jewish synagogues to block enforcement of a New York executive order that was restricting attendance at houses of worship in order to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. So both the Catholic Diocese and the synagogue said that this order from Governor Cuomo in New York violated their right to the free exercise of religion. And their main beef was that New York was allowing essential businesses to stay open while setting very strict attendance limits on houses of worship. These were in red zones and orange zones in New York, the places where the state was the most concerned about coronavirus spread. And churches and synagogues and mosques, etc., were limited to 10 people in a house of worship in a red zone and 25 people in an orange zone. So the best argument I thought the diocese and the synagogues made was, hey, we have cathedrals and buildings that can house as many as 1,000 people or 400 people. So how can you say that it's reasonable to have only 10 or 25 people at a place like that when you're not setting any kind of percentage capacity limit on grocery stores, etc.? The conservative majority on the Supreme Court exercising its kind of new muscle with the um, confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett sided with the religious organizations. Cuomo denounced this ruling as uh, dangerous to the city. And it's caused a lot of discussion among observers of the court about both the particulars of this case and its consequences for public health, and then kind of thinking forward about its implications. So I was wondering, John, when you were reading about this, like, as someone who's not, you know, looking at it from kind of through all the legal weeds. What did you think? Like, were you like, okay, 10 people seems like too few. I get it. Or did you think like, wait, why are judges second guessing elected officials and making this kind of decision? Or did you have a different reaction entirely? Well, and I, well, I guess my feeling was when I looked at particularly what the argument that Judge Gorsuch was making was like, there was an apples and oranges comparison that just seemed weak with respect to it's different kinds of behavior, and therefore, he, at one point, he compared um, shopping, the secular activities, to religious ones. 
and just skipped over the idea that they were totally different kinds of activities, one in which you're packed in and singing for a long period of time and others where you're engaged in a relatively short period of time and not, you know, singing, which they literally found one of the kind of ground zero moments was a church choir. And so I felt that that soured. That happened to be one of the first things I read, and it soured the whole reasoning for me, which felt like it was just a bit... Um, lacked, uh, I mean, my second thought was, and that was to ask you this question, which is how you order priorities. I mean, so there's the federalism question. Why is the, why, why is the Supreme Court stepping in here? But the second question is, how do you order priorities if you decide, yes, public health and, and maintaining public health is important and you don't want people to engage in activity that hurts others in the pursuit of their own individual liberties and freedoms? On the other hand, protecting individual religious observance is an important thing to protect. And how do you sort those things through? I mean, I guess that's what the, what's at the heart of the case. But anyway, those were my cluster of reactions. Yeah, I mean, in answer to your question, because of the First Amendment protecting free exercise, we do have, or courts apply a higher standard. They apply essentially strict scrutiny. The government has to have a compelling interest to restrict the activity of a religious group. Um, and so that's like part of why um, the case, that's part of the Supreme Court's ruling. On the other hand, this whole question of like the apples and oranges comparison is really crucial, right? Because the churches had to argue they were getting less favorable treatment. And they were only getting less favorable treatment if you compared them to places where, as you're saying, there was presumably less risk because what people were doing, right? Like even if you allow hundreds of people to go shopping, they're not all clustered and congregated together and they're not singing. Right. And not spending as much time together. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, this was a hard ruling to read a few days after I saw these pictures of thousands of people at a Hasidic synagogue in Brooklyn gathered for a wedding, which was totally illegal and against the rules in New York, only got a $15,000 fine, which seemed to me like a slap on the wrist. And so even though these particular plaintiffs from the diocese in Agudat, Israel, were arguing, well, we're not doing anything risky, we're trying very hard to protect our um, congregants, it just seems like there is reason to be concerned about churches and synagogues and mosques um, in coronavirus land. J Jamel, what did you make of all these competing interests? Though my, my reaction is similar to John's, that it's strange to me to compare COVID restrictions on church attendance to bike shops or stores or anything where people just aren't crowded together. It seems, and maybe I have this wrong, but it seems to me that if just the regulations had specified to you can only have 10 people in a bike shop, then this wouldn't really be much of a case, right? If you if you just said, you know, knowing that no one, you know, I go to bike shops all the time, knowing that no one's going to, there's not going to be 30 people in a bike shop at one time, knowing that there's not going to be a ton of people in a liquor store at one time, just put, say, flat, you know, 10 people, 15 people are allowed in everything. And that would sort of circumvent the, the issue here. There wouldn't be cause to say there's unfair treatment, even though... You know, the, I, the rationale of a specifying a number for a religious uh, institution and not a store is, to me, commonsensical, right? Like, you, you have to specify a number for a religious service or religious institution specifically because people gather there in large numbers for large amounts of time in a way that isn't true of these other activities. Um, what's interesting to me is this Kentucky case yes. where the rules – where there is no – we're, we're, we're – uh, 
Governor of Kentucky uh, Bashir did exactly that. It's a flat rule for he schools. He closed all public, the schools, uh, public, private, well, all the schools. Right. And the case is still that this is unfair. This is discrimination against religious institutions. Yes, there's a particular that, Christian academy, sorry, just to add one more fact, that is yeah. saying, like, we are called to God, by God to have in-person school. How dare you let kids go to the movies and go wherever else and not school? That, that, that to me, will be, if this gets to the court, will be sort of even a stronger test of where the this conservative majority is on this issue. Because as much as I, I do think I disagree with the court's um, decision re New York. It is thorny. It is sort of. It, it, it's all very difficult. There's, there's something clear cut here. So people of sort of good faith can come to different conclusions here. But the Kentucky case really just seems like uh, a religious school asking for special preferences. Right, and the apples to orange comparison comes back into play too right. because the this Kentucky school, which is called I think Danville Christian Academy, they're saying. We should be open, even though you've left these completely different things like movie theaters open in some way, which kids could possibly go to instead of comparing themselves to other schools. Um, right. And that that's a really interesting way of rethinking the priorities of the state. I'm sympathetic to the argument that the schools should come before all these other activities, but the notion that a religious school would have a particular way in to make that argument, and that, again, that you would have judges making those calls because of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment rather than elected officials, like, that, it's just really interesting. And all of this, I mean, it's worth saying all of this is happening in the context of a lack of government support for institute for for businesses that they closed right? right if it were the case that there was generous you know as they did i think in denmark where the government just took on private businesses on the government's payroll and for the duration of the crisis then you could open up schools so there wouldn't be this problem right like the reason why businesses have to be open is because they still need revenue they don't have the they don't have the support that simply shut down I mean, either the the proprietors or the government themselves, um, and so that's sort of the key pressure there. To my mind, making a judgment about these cases without thinking about that pressure ends up leading you to what I think is a pretty perverse place, where essentially in pandemic conditions, the gov governments can't do anything to control the spread among religious institutions. And also, they are constrained by fiscal reality. They have to keep all these other things open. That's effectively neutering the ability of governments to do anything um, in the absence of federal action to control a pandemic. And that, that just seems ludicrous. And dark, man. And dark <laughs> right. as we head into this like dark and dangerous winter. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, that's such a crucial point. I'm really glad you made it. So I wanted to ask one more question Thinking beyond coronavirus about, you know, it looks like we have this conservative majority that is going to be very willing to say that religious institutions should not be held to the same laws as everybody else. And we already have had this in cases like Hobby Lobby, um, this whole question of whether the um, mandate to provide birth control or insurance, health insurance that covers birth control to employees applies to religious institutions. And already, you know, the Supreme Court had ruled like, no, it doesn't apply if you have a religious or moral objection, you don't have to do it. And yet, on paper, we have still had this rule that comes from an older Supreme Court case, a decision actually by Justice Scalia, an opinion by Justice Scalia that says that 
If the state passes a neutral law, in other words, a law that's not prompted by animus against a religious institution, and it applies to everybody, it's generally applicable, then you can burden the observance of religion in the course of that law. And the case this comes from is um, a Native American group that was using peyote in its religious rituals. And the state said, no, like peyote is against the law. And the court said, yeah, the state is allowed to tell these Native Americans, no, they cannot use this peyote in their ritual. It's the facts of the case are a little complicated because it was about someone applying for um, social security or unemployment benefits. But like, essentially, that's the rule. And it really seems like the Supreme Court doesn't believe in that rule anymore and may, in fact, just like overtly, clearly overturn it later this year. Um, there's this case pending about whether Philadelphia can say to Catholic social services, we don't want to contract with you anymore for screening foster parents because you won't consider same-sex couples as foster parents, and that violates our anti-discrimination law. It seemed like pre-this Supreme Court, Philadelphia could do that because their anti-discrimination rule is generally applicable and was not prompted by anti-religious animus. Now that looks like very dicey. What do we think about this world we're moving into? I mean, one argument for it is that this is a compromise with religious groups that are feeling embattled by cultural changes like same-sex marriage, and you kind of give them an out and like, hey, that's fine. That's like a good compromise. Can I complicate this a little bit further and you can yeah. tell me where this is going wrong? Because I was wondering about seeing it from the other point of view. So the Capitol Hill Bapti Baptist Church got injunctive relief from a federal judge ag against the D.C. order that told them they couldn't have outdoor services where wearing masks and everything. And basically they won, it appears, because they argued, look, you're letting protesters go out and do their thing outside without saying they can't do that. So apply that standard fairly to everybody and don't penalize specifically this church. So that seems to be a kind of corollary to what you were talking about, Emily, which is if you have a law that applies to everyone equally, then it can apply to churches equally, even if it even if it infringes lightly on their First Amendment rights. So in other words, it would seem to me in the case I'm citing, the Supreme Court would be all in favor for that. Right. Don't put a special if you're allowing a certain kind of behavior, don't then create a special class for churches where you you're know, have, treating them worse. You mean that's like right. an apples to apples comparison right. where the yes, absolutely. That church would win. Yes. Right. So if you're if if you want it to be apples to apples when the church is disadvantaged, then in the case you're citing or the set of cases you're citing on the apples to apples principle, wouldn't it be the same thing? Well, if you keep this rule the standard in place about general applicability, then right. yeah, I think Philadelphia yeah. can clearly say to Catholic social services, it doesn't matter that you're a religious institution, you're not treating same-sex couples equally, and that's not allowed under our law. But I think there's no way the Supreme Court is going to say that this time. And I think we're moving into a world more and more where religious institutions get exemptions from laws that they have religious objections to. And I wonder, Jamel, you know, kind of what you make of that. Does that seem like an acceptable compromise at this moment in our political and cultural history, or does it seem like a big mistake? <clears throat> I, I actually do not know if I have like a, a solid answer here. Um, my sort of intuition is to say that it that we're, we're going to have to come to a compromise, right? That 
a, a non-trivial number of Americans genuinely perceive sort of the entire society to be against their religious, their ability to exercise their religion. And that seems to be destabilizing um, and is cause for some of those Americans to support politicians like Donald Trump, who I think genuinely threaten the sort of the basis for democratic government. And so if essentially sort of coming to a, a constitutional compromise, which, you know, religious devotion, religious belief entitles one's entitles one to exemption basically from a bunch of laws. If that's what it takes to kind of like get people on board again, then I think that is a compromise worth making. On the other end, it is a, there's like there are obvious slippery slopes here that all also leave me with like real pause and serious concern. So I, I this is like a thing where I, I like find myself I find myself unable to come to sort of any kind of conclusion because I I both see the I see the reasoning and the rationale for a compromise. I even lean towards it somewhat. But then, you know, the thing that always comes to mind for me is just, you know, the realization that, you know, 60 years ago, we, you know, uh, my religious beliefs means I can't serve black people, right? Sort of like that, that's that's within living memory yep. of many Americans. My grandfather just passed away this year. He was 80. Sorry, that's that's in living that was that was in living memory for my grandfather. When he was an adult, that was a that was an argument people made. Yeah. Um and so that that that's the thing that always comes back for me. Right. And it was actually fascinating in the Supreme Court argument about the Philadelphia case, the conservative justices were differentiating racial discrimination from anti-gay discrimination and saying, no, 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 we would never suggest that you could have a foster care screening process that discriminated on the basis of race as if these are completely different matters, whereas, of course, lots of people see a kind of civil rights continuum here. How did how did they make that case? They just like asserted. They it. just asserted it. <laughs> but it's obvious. But I mean, yeah, yeah it makes sense that they, you because it's 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 just yeah, it's the obvious implication here. Like you, it's it's just part of our history. So you can't once you once you raise that this 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 possibility of basically carving out a state of exception for religious institutions, you immediately run into this thing of well, what about racial discrimination, which is still a real thing in the world. It's not. It hasn't gone away. Um, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It seems like religious liberties are a kind of possible card that progressives could deal in the like grand compromise of everyone lives in the same country with at greater peace that you're imagining. And yet you can also see consequences pretty quickly that um, could seem not worth that bargain. And I think it's also important. I mean, you're making this point, obviously, that there are people on the other side, right? Like, it, it's it's not a free, um, usually it's not free what you're giving away. So, you know, in the Hobby Lobby case, you mean, it means that women who were being prescribed birth control had to pay for it themselves. Like, there is a cost there, and sometimes that cost seems worth bearing, and other times it just seems like, well, hey, wait a second. Right, right. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. 
a state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Moving on to topic three, by the magic of clever editing, David Plotz is here with us for this next segment, and Jamel is going to take a short break. Actually, we taped this conversation with former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, earlier in the week. Here it is. Several years ago, uh, we heard a remarkable bit of trivia, which is that the Prime Minister of Australia, the then Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, listened to the GabFest. And not only that he listened to it, we heard that he listened to it as he paddled his kayak around, I think, around Sydney Harbor. It was alarming, at least for me, to think that a world leader was getting some of his knowledge of American politics from us. No, it was but, exciting, David. It was only thrilling. Also, in it, any case, it is yet to be it is yet to be proved that he was getting any knowledge from listening to us. He might have. Been we're going to find out. We're about to find that out. Because it may have just been a lot of flannel. We are thrilled to be joined by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Now returned to a quiet life of business, of business and savaging Rupert Murdoch. Welcome to the GabFest, Malcolm Turnbull. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Hello. Great to be with you all. So quickly, did you, in fact, listen to the GabFest as you paddled around Sydney Harbor? I I did, and I I still do. That's uh, on Saturday morning, Sydney time. I guess it's Friday evening, your time. Uh, I generally go out for a paddle on my kayak, and I listen to the GabFest, definitely. It's uh, one of my favorites and has been for many years. And I hope you can you just reassure listeners that not a single decision you've made in your political life was colored by anything that we said. No, you were incredibly influential. Uh, I've, I've, uh, <laughs> you, you have no idea the influence you have. And uh, many of the uh, disastrous decisions in the global community over the last 15 years are your fault. <laughs> Especially because we have so much to say about international affairs. It's definitely the topic on which we are the most knowledgeable. Um, no, you know, you're brilliant. And you're, you're, dealing with, uh, you're dealing with, you know, mostly American politics, naturally. That's the program. But, but the big issues that you're grappling with are to be found everywhere. Of news becoming propaganda, of, you know, how do you reconcile the First Amendment with, with being deluged in lies, as Emily wrote the other day. I mean, that's, that, that is 
confronting every society. Malcolm, China and Australia appear to be engaged in increasingly dangerous confrontation. What is that about and should Americans worry about it? It's distant to us, but it feels important. Well, it's it's actually terribly important. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment is an exercise in attempted coercion or bullying. Uh, China, uh, unlike the Soviet Union, doesn't want to change our political system, but it seeks compliance. And it objects to the fact that Australia has pushed back against uh, interference in our politics. It, they didn't like the laws that my government passed to uh, uh, basically require anyone who was seeking to influence our public affairs on behalf of a foreign government or foreign political party to make a disclosure. They objected to that. They objected to the fact that we decided not to allow Huawei into our 5G network. And they object to Australia uh, expressing a view that uh, the rule of law, international maritime law, should apply in the South China Sea. So this is an example of a big country trying to get a smaller country to be more compliant. And the only way you can respond to bullies is to stand up to them and not take a backward step. And that's that's what my government did. And that's what the current government is doing. I wanted to ask you about the problem of disinformation that you referred to earlier, which I agree with you is an international problem, but which different countries are taking somewhat different approaches to. Your country, like ours, has a lot of impact from the media empire of Rupert Murdoch, and he's been a kind of antagonist of yours. How do you see Murdoch um, influencing what people know to be true or think to be true in Australia? And and do you think that his empire is changing in any way, or do you think that it will continue to be its kind of solidified right-wing influence in the parts of the world where um, it has uh, a real presence? Well, I I think Murdoch has uh, about 70% of daily newspaper circulation in Australia. He's incredibly influential, uh, particularly with the people that habitually vote for the centre-right parties. My old, my party, the Liberal Party that I led, uh, which of course is, you know, more like the British Conservative Party in terms of its, uh, you know, position in the political spectrum. Murdoch's media, and I've known Murdoch for well over 40 years and known his media very well, it has gone from being uh, outlets that are generally, you know, straightforward journalistic operations, some more tabloid than others, it has progressed now to become undiluted propaganda, absolute propaganda. And you see that with Fox News in the United States. You've seen that throughout his outlets, with the possible exception of the Wall Street Journal and the London Times. But the rest is become just political propaganda. So it is a media organisation that is, in fact, a political operation that happens to employ a lot of journalists. The truth is, if America is a more divided, uh, damaged unhappy, angry society today than it has than it was in years past, Murdoch has a lot of responsibility for that. So you, you can't uh, have power without responsibility. That's, you know, what Kipling called the prerogative of the harlot, probably unfair to harlots. But the, the bottom line is that Murdoch has to take responsibility for the damage he is doing to our democracies, your democracy and indeed ours. Mr. Prime Minister, give our listeners uh, some sense of the acute damage on climate change or even more broadly, if you'd like, and then uh, and then tag on to that, if you would, 
how you think the genie gets put back in the bottle. In the States, you have seen a bit of a crack where some members of Fox News have have accepted, for example, the fact that the election took place and that Joe Biden was the winner. And there seems to be a cleaving with new entities arriving uh, that are staying where the president is, which is sort of embracing this fiction. So there seems like there's a little bit of a cleaving. What puts the genie and that might lead to putting the genie back in the bottle? How would that work in Australia? Well, John, the, 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 the fundamental problem is that you've got a campaigns in what I would call the, you know, the populist political press, which is in, in our country mostly owned by Murdoch, that have not only campaigned to divide the country, they've, you know, been, they've, you know, launched campaigns against Muslim Australia, for example. You know, when as a prime minister, when I was trying to very carefully distinguish between Islamist extremism as opposed to Muslims and Islam uh, at large in the Murdoch press. You didn't get any of that nuance or subtlety. And so they were stoking division, absolutely stoking division. But perhaps the most irresponsible thing is climate. I mean, you know, we, we have got in Australia and America a situation where something that should be a matter of physics, global warming, is treated as a matter of value or identity. I mean, saying that you believe or disbelieve in global warming is as stupid as saying you believe or disbelieve in gravity. And that has been driven in our country and yours, in my country and yours, uh, by the right-wing media and in particular Murdoch. The question is, how do you get the genie back in the bottle? Well, this is the this is the point that Emily Bazelon was addressing in a piece in the New York Times magazine a while back. It is very hard. If you believe in free speech, if you believe in the First Amendment, then people are entitled to express views, even crazy views. But the problem is that the assumption on which all of this was based was that in the contest of ideas, the truth would triumph, and yet we are, in fact, drowning in lies. And I think I think the answer has got to, part of the answer has got to be, John, is that journalists like yourself call out the lies from other outlets. James Murdoch himself, Rupert's son, could no longer stomach the lies his family's papers were publishing in Australia about the terrible bushfires uh, a year or so ago, uh, where, the, where if you listened to the Murdoch outlets, uh, the cause was not global warming, not the fact that we were climate was hotter and drier, uh, it was, of course, arsonists. Now, you know, you saw this misinformation in the United States as well. So basically, I think what we've got to do at the very least is call out lies and propaganda for what it is. Now, I notice you're right. I mean, some people on Fox have said, have acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election. But, you know, is that really something to celebrate? I mean, that's like saying someone's acknowledged you know, that the, the, the sun has come up in the morning. I mean, right. of course, Joe Biden won the election. It's it was, a rather low bar. It is. But this is but this is but you see, this is the problem, isn't it? You know, that what we've got is a situation where where, where we have become so inured to people telling lies and spreading falsehoods and propaganda that when somebody actually acknowledges reality, we say, hallelujah, what an incredibly uh, positive move that is. I have a delusion that the United States would be a much better place with a parliamentary form of government and with ranked choice voting. 
that we would have an elected government that could govern. We'd have less cult of personality in politics. We'd have more effective politics and therefore people would believe in it and have faith in it. Does your experience in Australia, which has a parliamentary form of government and ranked choice voting, make you think that that system is healthier than ours? Well, I look, I, I, I prefer it, but you, you know, it's, you'd got, you'd have to be, uh, you have got to recognize the, the United States is, I think either the, or one of the longest uh, enduring democracies in the world. And, you know, one of the most successful, extraordinary uh, nations and societies Don't in Don't world history. Us. No, but it's true. But it's true. I mean, look, look, you've got plenty of faults, right? You've got plenty of faults, and uh, they're egregious ones in many respects. Guns, for example. But so, having said that, I do think parliamentary democracy is better. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you there is one flaw with it: that your executive, your ministry, your cabinet, is drawn from the members of the parliament. Now, that, that works, uh, but it works better when you have a large parliament, perhaps as in the UK, 650 members of the House of Commons and, you know, theoretically almost an infinite number potentially in the House of Lords. So, in our Australia, our federal parliament uh, has got 151 members in the House of Representatives and 76 in the Senate. So, if you have small parliaments... Uh, you can be very, you know, you can, you've got a limited talent pool to draw from. Um, I think the reforms, if you wanted to take some political reforms from Australia, what I would recommend to you is one, preferential voting, what you call ranked choice voting. Two, compulsory voting. I recognise that would be probably too long a bow, but, you know, from, from my point of view as an Australian, I cannot believe the way voter suppression operates in the United States. It is staggering to me that Americans are not united in wanting to get every single person who is, you know, an adult voting. I mean, that, that, that's certainly what Australians feel. So now the other thing we do that I think is, which I know you're doing to some extent, is we have a independent federal electoral commission uh, and, we, and they have counterparts in the states. So districts, constituencies, their boundaries are set, you know, by an independent body that obviously takes submissions and entertains discussions, but you don't get the kind of gerrymandering you have because the problem, it seems to me, with your gerrymandering with congressional districts, if you have a district that can, in reality, only be won by a Republican or, on the other hand, only be won by a Democrat, the real electoral contest is the primary. Uh, and so people are running off to the extremes Whereas if you have a fairly drawn constituency that is really contestable, uh, then you, the political contest is in the centre. And that's frankly where it ought to be in a democracy. So what is it like to live in a country with no gerrymandering and everybody voting? I mean, I the level of, it seems like, uh, some sort of Garden of Eden to me. In terms <laughs> Apparently, of you get to be prime minister. Well, yeah, it's well. I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the, no, everyone gets like, to be prime minister. What difference does it make? Like, how does it feel different? What different results? Okay, okay, against? it is. Well, politics is is more operates operates more at the centre. You know, the influence of those that are trying to pull it at the moment off to the populist right are offset by that. So, you know, that that is a countervailing factor against you know, right-wing media that uh, you get from Murdoch here. It, I'll give you, I'll give, just give you an example. So, so one of the things I did as Prime Minister was uh, legalise same-sex marriage. And it was a hugely 
controversial issue on my side of politics. You know, there are a lot of people on the centre-right, you know, I was, you probably worked out I was to the left of my political party, but but the but uh, a lot of people on the right were vehemently opposed to it. It was a hot-button issue, third-rail issue, all of those things. And we'd got into a situation where we had committed to give have a national vote. We couldn't get the legislation for a national vote through the Senate, and then we found a way to have a postal ballot without legislation. And it's all in my book, A Bigger Picture, if you're interested, for the legal buffs. But the um, anyway, so it was a voluntary postal ballot. Everyone got a letter which said, do you think same-sex marriage should be legal? Uh, absolutely voluntary. You could have easily thrown it in the bin. Do you know 80% of people voted? 80% in a completely voluntary postal ballot. And I was so proud. I was really proud that the vote was yes, which is about 63% yes, which was fantastic. Uh, but I was so proud that Australians cared so much about their issue and their democracy that in an election when they had no obligation to vote at all, uh, they chose to do so. Mr. Prime Minister, Joe Biden has said America is back at the table uh, with his presidency. What does that mean to you? And and what could America do to reassert its place at the table? Well, I think what what, what Joe Biden will deliver is consistent, principled leadership. Uh, you know, Trump, uh, you know, I had some celebrated encounters with Donald Trump, but Leaving all that aside, um, you know, it was the erratic inconsistency of it, you know, uh, you know, unsettling friend and foe alike. I mean, no one knew where he was coming from. And he saw this as part of his shtick. You know, that was his modus operandi as a, as a wheeling, wheeler dealer businessman. So, you know, just a return to normal transmission is going to be hugely important. Uh, but I think particularly in the area of climate policy. I mean, this is the big existential challenge that we all face today. Actually pulling out of the Paris Agreement has been devastating. So Amer restoring American leadership, uh, and you know, America is the essential nation. It is the largest democracy, the most influential country in the world today. It may not be quite as big an economy as China, who knows, but it has got so much influence and if it if it steps aside and chooses not to to use it, uh, you know that is that 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 leaves a vacuum. So so I think uh, the you know like everywhere right around the world, there's a collective sigh of relief when Biden won the election. I mean, it was uh, the the anxiety levels around the world uh, declined by a material percent when he uh, was when he won. Malcolm Turnbull is the former Prime Minister of Australia and, of course, a Gab Fest listener. Malcolm, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been great fun. Let's go to cocktail chatter. We got wonderful submissions from listeners this week, as always. Um, I picked one from Richard Wear a Mask at Five Cool Things blog. He was actually replying to at Harriet Mould. I hope I'm saying your name right, who wrote to us at Slave Gab Fest, if this isn't cocktail chatter material, then there is definitely no God. I completely, I believe in God. I am one of the God-fearing Gabfest members. And so how could I resist this? So what Harriet was sending us and Richard was uh, a video 
from an Italian singer named Adriano Celentano, who released a song in the 1970s with nonsense lyrics meant to sound like American English. Apparently, the idea was to prove that Italians would like any English song. It was a hit and resulted in this, what Harriet calls the greatest video she has ever seen. You do come and not choose no pipe, but not so hobble hobble just getting along to come no time. I watched this video with glee, and then I showed it to my husband without telling him, like, what it was, that it was this nonsense English. And what's really funny is that it made me realize when I was watching it both by myself and with him that I never understand the lyrics to any songs. And so the fact that they were just in gibberish, I was like, oh, this is a great dance. Like, it's just a normal thing. Anyway, I do very much recommend it. Here, Here's a question, which is... Um... How do you, do you, Emily, and do you, Jamel, listen to music while you work? I do, but I can't listen to music with lyrics while I work because I actually do. I can't. I, I hear all the words. That's and it just like it kind of throws me off when I write. So I listen to film scores when I work. Well, exactly. That's exactly where I was. Why I was asking that question because I can't listen to music because then I pay attention to the words instead of doing whatever I'm supposed to be doing. What are your film scores, Jamel? Uh, I listen to the Jurassic Park score a lot. Awesome. I listen to the Mask of Zorro score a lot. I listen to the score for Sidney Lumet's The Pawnbroker rather a lot. It's a Quincy Jones uh, composition, and I listen to the score for Mission Impossible Fallout, which is a, which is a terrific film score. Like really, I just want to say the idea that my writing was like Mission Impossible Fallout. <laughs> I think I would be like, uh, not so much, but I like that idea, like the drama, the riveting drama. I used to do the same thing to Glory and the mission, the film score to Glory and to the Mission. But at some point, I started to feel the writing was was. Disconnected from the swell of the music. <laughs> oh my god, Glory is like so stirring and sad, exactly. No, right? I know, and, and so, like you're crying. I don't think I could handle that at well, all. That's basically what started to happen. Is I started to be emotionally invested in in just even the film score. So yeah, no, I, basically this is all. I'm a mess. All right, I feel like that was actually sort of cocktail chatter, but it was not, I am sure, the cocktail chatter you each had planned. Um, Jamel, when you're having a drink of some some amazing concoction that you're making yourself this weekend, what will you be chattering about? As usual, I have a, a movie-related uh, chatter, not a specific film, but a, a recommendation to people. Uh, start watching your stuff on physical media again. During quarantine and all of this, I made the decision to buy myself a uh, 4K Blu-ray player, um, which these days aren't terribly expensive, costs as much as a regular Blu-ray player, and I started collecting 4K Blu-ray discs. And I was initially skeptical that this would make any difference compared to sort of a stream via Netflix or Amazon or whatever. But it actually, on a, on a, on a any decent TV, the difference is visible and sort of huge. Streaming directly from um, a disc there's more information, right? Like the, the picture better is better, the sound is better. And it's just like a better viewing experience all around versus streaming and internet stream, especially for the simple reason that to, to stream a movie from Netflix requires Netflix to compress the movie and eliminate stuff so it doesn't eat up all of your bandwidth. Whereas a, 
a Blu-ray disc can have 100 gigabytes of data on it and will stream directly to your TV. And there's no compromise whatsoever. So I the, 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 movie I, the first movie I bought for my new Blu-ray player was Hunt for Red October, kind of in honor of Sean Connery's passing. And uh, it's a terrific 4K transfer uh, and a great movie, too, if you've never seen it. So. so I just have to say that my husband has been trying to get my sons to watch The Hunt for Red October basically their entire <laughs> lives. It's like the joke in our house of like, what about The Hunt for Red October? And they have just refused. I'm sure they would love it. But at this point, it's like, you know, refusing to like put your warm socks on or something. I So I, I have loved that movie my entire life. But I also grew up in like a military town. And my parents were in the Navy. And kind of all my parents' dads like own Tom Clancy books, right? So it's sort of, it's sort of marinated and all of that. I, I have to imagine that if you were if you were a teen who didn't was not did not grow up in that kind of environment, you're not going to enjoy the hunt for Red October until you're 45. It's sort of that's either you get it when you're 15 or congratulations when you're 50, you'll you'll pick it up and you'll love it. All right, maybe that's the trick. John, what will you be chattering about this weekend? My uh, cocktail chatter is actually about cocktails, I guess. Oh, um, good. I, I was reading a story about the history of milkmen, um, which don't I don't have to explain why, but in it, they, it <laughs> I don't know. No, don't. That's so intriguing. Continue on. Um, there was a, an ad during this transition period between milkmen and then when you buy milk in the in the grocery store, and it's an ad, poor guy, of a of a milkman delivering the kind of milk bottle that would put them out of business. Essentially, the kind that could stay refrigerated in a and and preserve the milk longer. And that that led me to something called atticpaper.com, which is basically a place where you can buy old advertisements from old um, magazines and newspapers. And the one that caught my eye was from Collier's in 1949. We'll put a link to it on the show page, but I'm showing um, Jamel and Emily this ad. And it is for beer. And it is a family gathered around the Thanksgiving table. And everyone but has a glass of beer, including Grandma, who looks very excited about her beer. And this is the ad copy. Beer belongs. Enjoy it. In this home-loving land of ours, in this America of kindliness, of friendship, of good-humored tolerance, perhaps no beverages are more at home on more occasions than good American beer and ale. For beer and ale are the kinds of beverages Americans like. They belong to pleasant living, to good fellowship, to sensible moderation, and our right to enjoy them. This, too, belongs to our own American heritage of personal freedom. And this is sponsored by the United States Brewers Foundation, which calls beer America's beverage of moderation. Anyway, the wrapping of beer consumption with Americans exercising their personal freedom on Thanksgiving just felt like a huge kind of turducken of, um, well, of just... I don't know everything. So, but but really, check out ad, atticpaper.com, which has all of these great ads. You can discover all kinds of wonders there. I love that gem. My cocktail chatter this week is about a novella and stories I'm reading by a writer named Danielle Evans. The collection is called The Office of Historical Corrections, and I'm just thoroughly enjoying it. She's such a talented writer. She puts her protagonists of stories in these like wacky predicaments and end stories at really surprising junctures, I find. And I just am finding that short stories, novellas, like that's all I can handle right now. I love fiction so much, but I have 
gotten stuck in the middle of some long novels since the pandemic began, and I'm just finding shorter fiction, like, I get immersed in it, but it doesn't overwhelm me, um, and I'm looking forward to my attention span returning and hitting longer novels, I hope soon. But in the meantime, I really recommend this collection, which I should say my friend Dwayne Betts put me onto. It's called The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our managing producer is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director for Slate Audio, and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts. I'm Emily Bazelon, and for Jamel Bowie and John Dickerson, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week at our live show on December 9th. Go to slate.com slash live for more information. Hey, Slate Plus. David isn't here to ask you how you're all feeling, but he will be with us in just a moment. We have a special Slate Plus segment this week. It's a continuation of our delightful conversation with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And it's- I know, this is so fun. You'll have to come back now that we've done this. We were feeling a little shy. Well, but- I, I'll do a, I'll do a uh, we could try a kayak version, but um, the, the splashes will be... Uh, you know, or, or then you might just hear a crunching sound and then nothing after a shark has taken me out. You know. <laughs> How often is there? Do you see a shark? Well, I've never look. You know, I've never seen a shark. Uh, I actually saw two dolphins the other day. Fantastic! They were out. Yeah. Seems much more pleasant. Yeah, they were much more pleasant. The um, but you, the shark attacks are. Uh, they appear to be increasing. Uh, you've got to take it very seriously. The harbour, Sydney Harbour, where I've spent much, you know much of my life swimming, sailing, kayaking, doing all sorts of things on it, is cleaner because there's much less pollution. So there are more fish. And where there are more fish, there are more sharks. That you get visitors and they say always say things like, is it true there are sharks in the harbour? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. 
Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.